The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very warm welcome, everybody. This is Squawk Box. Let's get into your headlines. Profits at Chinese industrial companies surged nearly 30% in October. That's its sixth straight month of growth, pointing to a continued recovery in the world's second largest economy. The EU's budget faces more delays after Hungary and Poland doubled down on their opposition to the rule of law clause. This, as Polish Prime Minister, is urging bloc members to reconsider. This is not the right way to go. It will lead to a breakup of Europe and the European Union. Well, after the day off for the Thanksgiving holiday, the US market is looking pretty calm. This despite the president, Mr. Trump, apparently confirming yesterday the vaccine delivery will begin next week to frontline workers and senior citizens. And President Trump moves closer to conceding the US election, saying he'll leave the White House if and when the Electoral College confirms Joe Biden's win. So a very warm welcome to this Friday edition of the programme. Glad we all made it in one piece, pretty much. There's a uh, lot of bloated turkey eaters out there just a lot tuning of and going, oh, I need to do something else, I can't do any more NFL. <laughs> and do you hear about this thing about sweet go potato? Uh, go on, no. So, so I'm listening to a lot uh, of Americans on the radio talking about how they're going to celebrate right. Thanksgiving and what have you. Uh, uh, and I, excuse my ignorance, my dear friends in America, but there's this thing where you have sweet potato with marshmallows on top. Right. And it's a oh, thing. Oh, yes, I did see that. And it's yes, a I thing. Did. Yes, I did. And I'm like... Yeah. I like it, but I don't think I should. Yes. It's not yes. Very, you know, when you worry about our age, you yeah, worry yeah. about you know, what you eat and everything. Right, We're right. sticking a load of sweet marshmallows on top of sweet potatoes. Ah, don't worry. Just eat it. <laughs> You'll be fine. Uh, Chinese industrial... We've got a big data dump, haven't we? Chinese data. So let's talk about that. Chinese industrial profits surged by more than 28% in October. Manufacturing saw its sixth consecutive month of expansion as the country's economy continues a steady rebound from the pandemic. Let's take a look then at just some of the data points here. That 28.2% that we mentioned in the headline. This was where we were on the previous month, 10.1% here. And over the January to October period, 0.7%. So clearly an upward gradient in terms of the pickup in industrial profits. But let's be clear about this. A lot of the product that is manufactured is ultimately headed straight over to Western markets where it will ultimately be sold to the end user. Now, I'm not saying that you and I, after 20 years, and Karen as well, after nearly that time, but not quite as long, have a playbook of comments to make when certain things happen. But we have a playbook of certain things that we can say if we want to when certain things happen. So when I'm looking at these markets here, and I'm looking at the Nikkei, which is still rallying, but that's not quite uh, the point I want to make, about the Hang Seng flat, Shanghai composite mildly higher, the ASX 200, which we know the Australians have got their own problems with China at the moment, but they still sell an awful lot of product into China as well. 
I'm underwhelmed. There's you giving me my big data dump, apparently. And I've got, what is it, 28%? I can't even see it behind yep. you. 28% on the October industrial profit. These are big, big numbers. Yay, we're off to the... No, we're not off to the races. So then I, out of my playbook, I pull out the line, well, of course, you know that means necessarily they don't necessarily get as much stimulus into the Chinese economy because they're doing really well. Maybe they can take back some of the emergency measures mm. uh, in the form of the triple R or other very conciliatory measures to the financial sector and the, and the broader economy. Maybe it starts us thinking about maybe they need to rein in parts of the economy as well because of an explosion of activity perhaps on the consumers. So, so there are caveats that we have in our armory all ready to go when the markets are underwhelmed by such an impressive figure. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it, you, it's great that you make that point because I think what everybody is looking at is, yes, some of the headline data is really encouraging, but China has the same problem that we all have. We're carrying a little bit too much baggage, and that baggage is debt. And over the last four years or so, the Chinese uh, household has put on something like nearly $5 trillion worth of additional debt, which has obviously helped the Chinese economy with this pivot to domestic-led growth. But of course it also slows down the pace of productivity going forward. And I'll just put one more little element. I know Sam's champing at the bit to get in and yeah. give us some sense here. But, but I mean, what was all that about with Ant Financial and Jack Ma and Xi Jinping putting his, uh, his fist down on this? What, what was that all about, if that wasn't concern about what you just said? Uh, let's, uh, let's kick the ball out to Sam, of course, because there's that other interesting story about economic nationalism, Sam. Um, I think you are an Australian, uh, and now the Australian <laughs> winemakers, Good spot, Jeff. the Australian winemakers are getting it in the neck from China. Yeah, that's right. But I'll start on those profits at China's industrial firms because I think really what this does tell us now uh, is that we are seeing a more sort of steady recovery in that very hard-hit manufacturing sector. And that is uh, down to a lot of that uh, government stimulus or thanks uh, in part to that. As you rightly pointed out, the profits at China's industrial firms did rise uh, for the sixth straight month, but uh, they really did jumped quite significantly from September's at number of 10.1% year on year. So almost triple that increase and from January to October rising 0.7%. So actually jumping into growth for the first time this year. But as far as uh, the markets are concerned, I mean, in terms uh, of what we are seeing there, the Chinese blue chips are getting a little bit of a lift off the uh, positive data. We have also seen uh, China's industrial firms pushing higher today. The index that tracks those specifically is up uh, seven-tenths of one percent. But I think uh, it is interesting to uh, go beyond that headline number and really break down in terms of where some of this has come from, because the Stats Bureau has said that the biggest contribution uh, did come from that profit growth in equipment manufacturing. As you rightly pointed out, a lot of the products uh, are pushed out to to the West. And it said the electronics industry has uh, seen double-digit growth since it turned positive in April. And that is perhaps a sign that, you know, demand for these products uh, out of China has been quite strong as a lot of people have been working from home globally. It also said profits uh, in the auto sector had been helped by the government support for consumption with those uh, sales in trucks and new energy vehicles rising. Of course, we did see those auto sales rise 12.5% last month. Profit growth in consumer goods manufacturing was also said to have risen uh, thanks uh, in part uh, to those exports. So I really do think this is uh, quite a a government stimulus uh, led recovery 
recovery, but also, uh, you know, as demand uh, globally is still there for these products out of China, the industrial sector, you know, largely has been supporting this uh, economic recovery for most of this year. And that is thanks to a lot of this domestic demand holding up quite well, as we have seen uh, this boost in infrastructure spending by the government. And that is largely been seen as really trying to mitigate some of these external risks like this uh, resurgence in cases uh, of the coronavirus and also some of these geopolitical concerns. And uh, that is certainly consistent with this dual circulation strategy that the Chinese government has very much been promoting lately, which does uh, aim to prioritise and focus on the domestic economy in terms of its growth, guys. Sam, terrific. Thank you so much for that. And if if it's any comfort for you, I'll be doing my best to help out the Australians over the weekend. What? What are you going to be doing? Oh, I think a nice Australian Shiraz could go down very well Careful. over the weekend. You know Karen's listening, don't you? She if you is. She's the wrong wife. She we'll is. Be in deep trouble well, straight I, away. I don't know if Karen drinks Australian. Did, she only drinks French, doesn't Did you she? Notice high the end head French. of news came up to us afterwards. You know, that's cocktails you've spoken about twice this week. I don't know if she was Did saying she? to us, we need to move on. But now oh. we've done it three times. <laughs> uh, Karen, is, is Jeff, is she listening? She's there? Is Karen, is Jeff's uh, mention of a Shiraz, is that wetting the appetite? Is he, is he chosen the right kind of wine for the weekend? Uh, it's red, yes, so it does tick a big box, <laughs> and I think I'll be joining Jeff toasting with the red wine. Uh, I'm afraid you can't mix two households. Absolutely, we're in tier two. <laughs> <laughs> virtually, virtually. Uh, let's, uh, let's, uh, t- talking about problems, um, let's talk about this uh, Spanish banking deal. So um, we were discussing this actually before we came to air because there was this report in uh, Economista, I think the magazine is called, um, El Economista on Thursday, suggesting that the BBVA Sabadell deal might be off. Well, confirmation this morning, Spain's uh, banker Sabadell on Friday saying it's called off merger talks with its biggest rival BBVA after failing to agree on the terms of a potential share exchange ratio. Uh, The derailing of negotiations is expected to put more pressure on Sabadell, which have been seen as the weaker link in the potential transaction, according to Reuters. A tie-up between the two would have created Spain's second biggest domestic bank with almost 600 billion euros in assets. It would have come on the heels of the Caixa Bank Bankia deal and the Unicaja Liberbank deal. But apparently this one won't happen. I just wanted to point something out before I let you guys come in. It's just the performance of the share price on uh, Sabadell since the uh, deal was announced here. And I think, you know, the irony might be that because Sabadell actually got a near 25% pop um, on the announcement of the deal, maybe the board of the bank started to think a little harder about how much money they'd like in return for selling the bank to BBVA. So irony of ironies, the talk of the deal may actually have been part of the reason that the deal hasn't been consummated at this point. Um, I'm not sure that this is over, though, because I think the pressure is so intense here for these Spanish banks to to continue this round of consolidation that I wouldn't be surprised if we see, um, not far away, uh, a new announcement emerge of uh, repeated interest in cementing this deal or indeed a third party entering. Karen, I don't know, what's your read on this? 
And Jeff, I'm completely with you. It feels like this might just be the first stage of a negotiation. If you've got everyone else consolidating around you, then you can't really be left as a standalone entity, given the economies of scale that it can be eked out by all the other major players. And it was a huge amount of synergies that was tallied up in that Kaja Bankier deal. So you can see that if you've got better cost synergies in one bank and then your bank and you stand alone, you're still facing the same old pressures of low interest rates, not a lot of customers coming through the door and just very low profitability. So you have to do something. But it would seem that BBVA, which of course we know is the much larger player, is holding a lot of the cards at this point. It's got overseas businesses. It's sold down one of its big US assets recently. It's got the cash. They're ready to go. So it's standing in a much better position to negotiate a deal. The other point I would make is that we were mentioning the other day the difficulty in getting cross-border mergers to happen in the banking sector. Well, if Sabadell is hoping that a foreign player might swoop in and save it, it might be waiting some time given we don't have that banking union. So I think the dynamics at play here suggest that the deal might continue to be one that uh, we have to keep watching down the track. Okay, let me just take the the, the broader, uh, I think nothing to disagree with either of you, of course. This is a bank. This is a sector. This is a country which is in dire, dire straits in banking. Despite all the mergers we've seen, it's still overbanked, undercapitalized, uh, and has real concerns as well. You've got to remember when we see the, we talk about beta and we talk about beta in economies, and my goodness me, we've seen some dire figures out of the UK this week as well. But when you talk about downturns and, and, and depression-like economics, you've got to remember the near 30% unemployment we saw at the height of the financial crisis from the likes of Spain as well, and the devastating figure we see in youth unemployment as well. So in this kind of downtick, we know that Spain is going to get it badly. Then we look at the capitalization of these banks as well, and the price to book ratio, which I've made a point of making a point about this week, actually. And the fact is, there's got to be something wrong here because all these banks think their price to books are undervalued and the market's underpricing them. Well, maybe to the banking sector, I would say you're overpricing your book value as well. Because when I've looked at a lot of these banks, I I used to balk at a 0.5. I'd certainly balked at a 0.3. What do you reckon this one trades at? 0.18. I didn't give you a chance to think about that. 0.18. That means that the company believes the book value is five times and then a bit of change uh, of what the market thinks their assets are worth as well. Uh, And I'll just make the other point about how this revolution and the, 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 the Italians and the Spanish will turn around to me and say, oh, but we are consolidating. We have taken out our branches. We are taking out the overcapacity. Have a look at this number, and this is courtesy uh, of the FT when the deal was originally announced as well. Spain still has, despite halving the number of branches, In the past decade, it still has over 50 branches per 100,000 population. That is one of the highest in the EU. And Italy, which we've talked about as being overbanked, has 39, so compared with the over 50. France has about 34. And Finland, I don't think anyone accuses Finland of being uh, behind the curve on the financial fintech stakes as well. They have three. So if anyone thinks this can't get a lot worse in terms of the number of branches, but actually, dare I say it, be a cost opportunity, Finland has three per 100,000 of the population. The Italians have 39. The French have 34. The Spanish have over 50. I'll just make one very other quick point here. Um, according to the Reuters copy I was looking at here, Goldman Sachs is advising Sabadell on strategic options. JP Morgan is advising BBVA. Isn't it interesting? You've got two American investment banks here that are 
digging into the weeds here on the European banking M&A stories. And in, in, in that very phrase is part of the problem with the European banking well, story at the moment. We don't even need to get kind of patriotic for Europe. I know Britain's coming out of Europe, but we are Europeans. I consider myself a European at least as well. Where's the UBS on this one? Where's the Credit Suisse on this one? Where's the Deutsche Bank on this one? Where's the HSBC, the Barclays? It's a, such a... Barclays, which I've got a long memory. I remember Matt Barrett going into mm. Spain Full guns blazing, buying Zaragoza or I can't remember to say the word yeah. probably, but Zaragoza, what's Sa the word? Zaragatoza, was it? Yeah, something like that. Oh, anyway, anyway, buying all kinds of assets. Spain was going to be a great new front for Barclays. Well, the retrenchment in cross-border consolidation in Europe has been nothing short of, well, it's been a disaster, isn't it? Well, I think uh, a lot of those co companies actually realised that the real opportunity at that point in time may have been in the Spanish-speaking Latin American world. Indeed. Right, let us... The prompt's going backwards. What's going on? <laughs> Coming up on the show, Hungary and Poland dig their heels in on their threat to veto the EU's budget as 1.8 trillion euros hangs in the balance. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. amazing team of producers on this show and but, but they're not as old as Jeff and I in fact Jeff and I have got about a thousand years in this market so we, so when they kind of say oh, I've got this really great headline for you I'm like have a think sometimes maybe that's because the problem is very often the journalism profession tries to and analysts and commentators and strategists try to say the markets move because of this uh, and one thing I, I try and say to the people who are not as ancient as us is the market doesn't necessarily move on, on the back of anything logical that we know and that's the truth. There's momentum going on. There's trades going on that we just don't know about. We can't know about as well because they're not public information as well. So, so when I look at the US futures, like I look at them now, for instance, and I say, well, yeah, they're not really moving because I think earlier on the Dow was down a bit and we were like, oh, it's moving because they're concerned about this. And like, it doesn't have to be the case that we have to put a label on the fact that the S&P implied open is up 3.6. The Dow is up 14.5 uh, and the Nasdaq's up 37.4. There is no great piece of information that I can give to you, the audience, that says that is why. Now, I can construct something because we can construct anything here as well. As I've said to you for a long time, if, if Jeff says... White is a very light colour. I, 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 can, I can disagree with him because we can do it. Oh, oh, black's very dark today. But no, no, we can disagree with it. So we'll always try and find something to give you a two-way trade. We'll give you two views on it as well. So I can construct an argument that oh, the Chinese data definitely is acting as a catalyst for the market as well. And there's great hope about uh, Black Friday sales and there's great hope about this and we're going to get more stimulus here and the Brexit talks have done this. But the fact of the matter is I can't always give you a real rationale of why the market's up two points or down two points. Sometimes it's blatantly obvious and that makes my job a lot easier. So when I look at those futures, there, I just say it's mildly higher. Okay, 
And I'm not going to give you a rationale because it could be anything. And we, there's no real move on that. And liquidity today is going to be tough, isn't it? We've got a half session on a lot of these markets as well. A lot of people are not going to bother in the States. So you're going to lose a lot of liquidity on the global markets. Have a look at the Treasuries anyway. 0.855. Been remarkably stable this week, isn't it? I mean, we've had various commentators talking about an assault on 1% on the yield, talking about 1.2, 1.4. And you're seeing a lot of that because a lot of people are putting that as the other side uh, of their... Uh, S&P 3800 or their S&P 4000 or their S&P 4300 for 2021 as well. So they're looking at finally the bond trade losing a a bit of ground as well. But at the moment, it seems remarkably steady on the 10-year note as well. I'll just point out the 30-year trading at 1.6, give or take the change. Let's have a look at the dollar crosses as well. See if I can pull anything out from this as well. Again, dollar-yen has had a, a 103 handle consistently. I will actually just draw your attention to these two. I think this is quite interesting. I don't know if Jeff's looked at it at all. Look at that. 119. It's having another little go, another little go in the year. Maybe those 120 North people who've been staking their, their career on it this year, maybe they'll get a bit of a leeway. And look at the pound. It's just because, again, I, was, I said to Jeff before the show, and Karen, I know you're listening as well, so you might want to come in on this one. I, I said, oh, did you see that stuff about the fisheries yesterday? And again, it, you construct an idea in your head about what the markets will do. They're like, What's, what? He said, oh, I didn't see anything. Apparently, there was an emergency meeting call between Barnier and the fisheries ministers, ministers, ministers of Europe. And then Twitter was like, oh, they're conceding, they're conceding. And, like, and I was like, really? Does this mean anything of Brexit? Well, I, I can, again, I'll say to you, oh, look, 134, people are getting more optimistic about Brexit. But actually, when I look at it in the broader context of the dollar decline, it may just be a bit of that. Karen, Jeff, I don't know if you want to get involved in this one. Steve, no. so many false dawns. We've been waiting and we've been waiting, haven't we? We thought we had an end game ages ago. And here we are as we count down to the final deadline. I think we'll just wait and see until you say to me, it's on. I don't think uh, we can we can start toasting to that one just yet. But uh, the market certainly moved in advance, which is typically what we see anyway. Jeff, do you want to jump in? Just um, on the on the sterling trade, it just seems to me that we get a round trip every time there's a little bit of breaking news. That 130 remains the level at which the the the, the rate is really anchored, and we go a little bit below or a little bit let's above. Let's do an exercise here. I tell you, let's do a bit of live. I'm going to tap into a well-known search engine, which may or may not be facing multiple investigations in Europe. Uh, I'm going to put in the word Brexit. Okay, I'll just put in Brexit. Uh, I put double B in, so I can't spell it properly. Uh, and, and here's your headlines. So this is Brexit news. So face-to-face talks to resume in London. Well, I can construct an, uh, a debate around that. There were deba- doubts whether the Europeans would even turn up because they were uh, finding all kinds of issues. The Independent in the UK saying trade talks in fresh crisis as UK admits it does not know if the EU will turn up. Well, that's 10 hours ago. And then the BBC says uh, seven hours ago they will be happening. Um, FX Street saying G. BP, the pound, the first dollar, looks to 134 on vaccine hopes and eyes weekend Brexit talks. Well, there is also an, an argument you can put in the market at the moment that vaccine hopes have taken a step back because there have been some concerns, right or not, about the AstraZeneca um, vaccine and how they are going to be having another set of trials as well. Daily Express, which is always, if you don't know the Daily Express, it is, everything's always great about Brexit, um, whether it is or not. Brexit deal up to the EU, says Britain, as anger mounts over Brussels' changing approach. And finally, the mirror, uh, British passport holders banned from playing Prince William thanks to Brexit. <laughs> Seen that one? What's that? There's this story that... <laughs> <laughs> you do look at the news, don't you? Uh, no, I was just uh, tuning t- out. I was just looking oh, okay. at the coming story. There's a story doing rounds that <laughs> right. a lot of the streaming producers, I think it's yeah. Netflix, do not want British passport holders playing some of the key roles in the royal, right. unless they've got a European passport as well, because they're worried about the post-Brexit environment and getting this person oh. cross-border. 
Wow. All words to that. It's amazing, isn't it? The ramifications potentially of this. And we thought it was just about sausages. I mean, can you imagine? I, I, I'm up in arms about this one. Can you imagine the idea of having a German playing a British royal? And if you don't get the irony of that, then you shouldn't be here. <laughs> okay. Because uh, the British royal family comes from German. It's all right. It's all right. Uh, In-person Brexit talks will resume in London this weekend, according to BBC. I just read it. There you go. We've just over 30 days until the transition deadline. Uh, this after talks were suspended when a member of the EU team tested positive for coronavirus. You know, there was a time a while ago when Prince Charles was in, uh, studying down in Australia where we thought we might end up with an Australian queen. Talking of Australian royal family, Karen. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Steve. Let's push on to what we're going to see here in the UK over the next few weeks as uh, the British government has announced the details of its new three-tier regional system of restrictions for England, which will come into place once the national lockdown ends on the 2nd of December. Manchester will be placed under Tier 3, that is the tightest set of uh, measures that we will see, while the likes of Liverpool and London will be in Tier 2. Prime Minister Boris Johnson defended the measures. These tougher tiers strike a balance. They're sufficient to continue driving the virus downwards, but it's important to recognise they're less intrusive than the current national measures. In all tiers, shops, gyms, the leisure sector, hairdressers, other forms of personal care, places of worship will reopen. You will no longer be instructed to stay at home, though you should continue to work from home if you can. What we want to avoid is relaxing uh, now too much, you know, taking our foot off the throat of the beast now, when we've, when we've got it uh, you know, pretty much where, uh, in a much, much better place than it was before the autumn measures came in. Boris Johnson. Well, Germany plans to borrow almost 180 billion euros in new debt next year, according to lawmakers speaking to Reuters. This would be nearly twice as much as Finance Minister Olaf Scholz had previously set out. It would also be the second largest amount of borrowing in post-war Germany. Chancellor Angela Merkel this week extended a light version of lockdown measures until December the 20th. Hungary and Poland have intensified their opposition to the EU's 1.8 trillion euro budget unless the rule of law conditions are removed. The two countries' leaders held a joint press conference arguing the EU must respond quickly as withholding emergency funds is irresponsible and that their position is meant to, quote, change bad dynamics within the bloc. Sylvia, as I was trying to point out to the Deputy Foreign Minister of Poland last week as well, it's, uh, it's very similar to Brexit in many ways to me. It's our club and we'll do what we want. Surely they make up the rules because it's their club. Well, this is the latest standoff in European politics. And actually, when it comes to comparing it with Brexit, what we do know and what we do expect is that this will be overcome much quicker than the overall Brexit process, which has been dragging for several years now. And actually, in that press conference that we heard yesterday from both Hungary and Poland, they did make their repeated, essentially, their message that they want this rule of law mechanism, uh, the link between disbursing the funds with the rule of law mechanism to be removed in this 1.8 trillion euro package. And they also suggested if indeed the EU is meant to go ahead with this uh, idea, with this link between disbursing the funds and the rule of law mechanism, then that should 
should be done as part of a wider discussion and reopening the European treaties. And that, Steve, is something that nobody wants in Brussels. None of the European governments want to do that sort of negotiation because that just takes several uh, years. It's a very detailed negotiation. And Poland and Hungary, when they mentioned that yesterday, they're, they're very much aware that no one wants to indeed reopening the European treaties. But let's take indeed um, a look at some of the remarks from the Polish Prime Minister yesterday. When you compare this process with the ongoing Brexit negotiations, the Polish Prime Minister made a similar remark there, stating that this process, this row over the EU budget is threatening the European Union. Let's take a listen. This is extremely dangerous for Europe's cohesion. It's a bad solution that threatens the breakup of Europe, of the European Union in future. The debate of the EU is not about the rule of law, but it is about establishing the rule of the majority. But just making one final reference between a comparison between this difference over the EU budget and the Brexit process. Back then, back when the vote happened here in the UK to, to leave the European Union, the public opinion was very much divided over whether or not the UK should be part of the EU. But that's not the case in Hungary and Poland. There are very much different polls that I checked. They, they stated that indeed the public sentiment towards the EU is still very strong in these countries, despite what the positions of their uh, governments might be. Though both Hungary and Poland, they also state in different occasions that they are indeed pro-European. And then let me just make a final point that these negotiations are likely to continue over the coming weeks. This is a very important discussion for the German government, which currently has the rotating presidency of the council so it's up to the german government to lead some of the some of the main political discussions in europe the expectation is if indeed there is a breakthrough in these talks then the european leaders will be able to discuss and sign a potential uh, agreement at their european summit in december on the 10th and 11th but let's see whether or not that will be well will be the case the, the, what we do know is that uh, they, this impasse uh, is likely to be overcome. The question really is really how is this going to happen and when, whether or not this is, is actually going to compromise the disbursement of European funds that are much needed across the EU. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.